0: Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, I'm going to keep this fairly simplistic in its presentation. And here's, here's my hope is that we're going to talk about, uh, at the end of Hebrews 13, you're going to see the author just starts sharing, peppering all kinds of thoughts on how to make the application to, to the book of Hebrews to our lives. He, he dealt with the sufficiency of Jesus and everything and how to see Jesus as the culmination of everything that the old Testament spoke about the shadows of the old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And now what do we do with that? And he starts peppering this really heavy at the end of the book. And Hebrews 13 is a lot like that. Each, each verse builds off of the former verse uh, but it does it in a powerful way for us to examine our own lives to see if we're living a healthy and strong uh, christian life and if you remember where we ended last week it, it gave the idea in verses five and six that jesus will never desert you verse five he will never forsake you the lord is my helper he says in verse six i will not be afraid what will man do to me So the strength of the believer is found in everything that Jesus is, his identity. So we talk about being healthy, being strong in Christ. I know at places in our lives, we oftentimes don't feel that way. We feel uh, weak, we feel alone, we feel zapped of our energy, and here we see biblical passages that talk about strength, and, and, and fighting the good fight, and living for the faith, and And, you know, what I think is really important in our lives is the places of weakness is oftentimes where we find ourselves really strong in Jesus. In fact, Paul said it this way, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because finally in his weakness, he really found the strength for which he was created to discover, which is in Jesus alone. And so a place of weakness, When we talk about being healthy and strong as a believer. A place of weakness is a beautiful place of strength in Christ. And we think about... Hum- humanity as a whole we know there's there's different ways that we can develop our strength mentally physically spiritually and, and when i think about god developing us in in the strength that it means to follow after him my mind wants to reflect on the, on something that's tangible in our lives like if you ever you ever go to the gym and you see that guy that just obsesses about his upper body but he walks on sticks for legs you know or or the opposite of that the guy that builds up his legs he looks like he-Man on the bottom, but Pee Wee Herman on the top, you know, it's like when it comes to the Christian life, there is a, a healthy balance in pursuing Jesus. That so when we face hardships, the, that when we find our strength in Jesus and we, we find the sufficiency of Christ in those moments, the next time those hardships come, we're just all the more stronger in pursuing after, after God. And this is where Hebrews meets us, is that these are believers about to face persecution because of their faith in Christ. And the ability to endure is important. Remember remember the basis for this text. It talks about chapter 11, uh, r- the, the faith of those that have gone before us. In chapter 12, it calls us to run the race now as followers of Jesus. And, and the rest of this book is laying that foundation of what that race running in Christ is all about. When you look in, in in scripture, the Bible tells us very plainly, 2 Corinthians cha- or, excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, verse 12, you will face persecution for following after Jesus. Jesus even said in John 16, verse 33, there will be tribulation. Uh, but he encourages in, in the book of Timothy, he says this in 1 Timothy 4 7, uh, train yourselves to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. You think of all the ways you consider being a healthy individual, spiritually it has more endurance than, than just this physical wor- world that you live in. And so the author starts developing for us six areas of godly training in our lives or godly identity for which we find our strength. And so sometimes when we get into a a place that has lists, we can get overwhelmed by the amount of things that are listed. But this is what I would tell you for application today. I want to know Jesus and meet with Jesus. And I understand I am a work in progress, right? And I can't fix everything all the time. In fact, I can get really good at something and then focus on something else and realize I just, I just forgot about what I had developed in my spiritual life. And, and, so, um, and so when you see lists like this, I think it's important just to look at one area that might, might relate to where you are and, and just consider that this week. Think on that, meditate on it, let it saturate uh, your life and where you are in the Lord. And, and so this is where he starts. and In verse 7 he says, Remember those who led you. Who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. It begins the idea on, on the thought of remembering, and remembering was important to the Jewish community, it was important to, to Christ. They laid uh, a foundation on the past in order to build on the future. They didn't live in the past, but they understood the past helped shape them or refine them for where they were in the present. Uh, let's say sometimes things in our lives happen to us and, and wrongly so we can al- allow the past to define us. Now, certainly the past can help shape us, but the past is never intended to define us. It's intended to refine us. And, and so when we look at the idea of living in the moment and pushing forward, it's, it's remembering uh, what's happened in, in the past and it identifies it with, with people as it relates to people. So in Israel's history... God told them to remember the Passover. Passover was a significant place for which they found uh, their identity that refined them for the future and their living. It wasn't just about living in the past, but understanding there are promises that were made in the Passover. That it was to be a symbol of what Jesus would ultimately bring for his people in deliverance. That God is a deliverer and God is a redeemer. And so they would remember that. And then when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he says, uh, and thinking about communion, which we'll celebrate here at the end of the service, he says, do this in remembrance of me. So in Jesus taking our our sin at the cross, he not only pays for our past, but he gives us a future in him. He, He doesn't just take your bank account, which is negative against God, but he gives you a new identity belonging to him as king in his kingdom. And so we live in light of that. We, we understand the past and it refines us in order to understand what our, our future is about. And when he talks about remembering, he relates this to individuals who have walked in this path of what we're called to remember. He says, remember those who lead you. And I want you to say it would be very easy for me just to incorrectly relate this text to maybe someone in my position this morning standing up, teaching God's word, being some sort of an example, whatever you want to think of that example. But but I think this verse means more than, or doesn't doesn't involve me. I should say it doesn't mean more than me, but it just doesn't involve me. And and the reason is because of of the way it. It relates to the end of this verse. It says, remember those who lead you, who spoke the word of God to you and consider the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. So when it's talking about those who led you, it's saying to remember the result or consider the result of their conduct as a totality of their life. Their life has been a living example to you. So this is an individual that has lived and walked the Christian faith for the duration of their life. This is not talking about someone that followed Jesus for a little bit and fell off by the wayside. This is someone who has consistently pursued Christ with their life. That cannot be me. I'm still a spring chicken. I'm barely getting wrinkles, all right? So this is, this is someone that you look at, maybe even someone that's moved dead in the faith. So, I mean, I, I think if, if you're a first-generation Christian, you may not even have this. And this is why throughout this series, I, I've kept this verse in mind as we've looked in the book of Hebrews. I've tried to pepper the end of these sermons talking about Christians that have made a difference throughout history. Because there's someone that's lived that example that we can look to, but look look what he says. He says, consider their conduct, but then he doesn't tell you to stop there. He says, imitate their faith. He tells us don't, don't just copy the fruit, but look to the root. What led them? When you go all the way back to Hebrews chapter 11, that's where this started, right? The, the chapter of faith, the hall of faith of those who looked to God. They realized that this world was not their home and they looked for a greater, uh, a greater place, a greater purpose. That's what it talks about in Abraham in chapter 11. Who, he knew his home wasn't of this world and so he looked to God, the one who gave him the, delivered him the promises that through him all people, groups would be blessed. Consider what guided their heart. We've talked about some of these together, like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot or John Wycliffe and William Tyndale and David Livingston and Corey ten Boom and Amy Carmichael. History is full of them. You can just pick up Fox's Book of the Martyrs and read through just throughout the centuries those that have continued to give their life in faith to Christ to the point that it costs their life. Look to their faith. What did they trust in? I told you in the beginning, a lot of times, or a a few weeks ago, a lot of times we have the tendency to take Christian leaders or Christian people that have made a difference and we put them on a pedestal and idolize them and say, that's them, but that's not me. The reality is when you examine people that have pursued Jesus with their lives, they're deeply flawed. There's nothing special about them apart from the fact that their faith was in the one who gave them identity and purpose and meaning. They would tell you it's not them, it was Jesus. It was the surrendering of their heart to who he was. And then it goes on from there. The reason why that we're able to do this, and I think this is a very powerful verse worth memorizing and holding on to if you don't hear anything else today, this verse, right? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His nature does not change. The Jesus that we read about in the New Testament has been Jesus from all of eternity. The Bible refers to him as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Those are the first two letters of the Greek, first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. It's like saying he's the A to Z in our lives. He is the all-encompassing Everything. Jesus then is the the same yesterday, today, and forever. And and, and the identity reminds us of this. Your your faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith upon. What you really trust in, is it dependable? Is it worthwhile? Well, I I would argue this, that if Jesus changes, he is inconsistent and insufficient. Insufficient. If Jesus had to grow or Jesus had to become God or Jesus was anything less than who his nature claims that we understand him to be um, from a Christian worldview, it it expresses an insufficiency in, in Jesus. There's something greater than him because he wasn't the greatest if he had to change but the fact that he is consistent with his nature always and forever for all of eternity from past to beginning shows the validity of why our trust can can rest in him and why these heroes in verse seven and chapter 11 were able to, to do the things that God led them to do because Jesus was able to be dependent upon. He was the object of faith for which we could trust and he would always be consistent in his identity. If your Jesus changes that is not biblical Jesus. Just because you use the name Jesus doesn't make it Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it goes on a little further and expresses in this passage where the struggle was and why this verse became essential. He says then in, in, in the next following verses to spiritually nourish here. So we remember, remember the past. He tells us to look to Jesus who is always the same and then nourish here. He says this, do not be carried away by varied uh, and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. You can insert here, religious identity. Because they're using food as an excuse to say, look, it's Jesus is okay, but you need a little bit more here. And so they insert the idea of, uh, of religious practice through food, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What is he talking about? The sufficiency of, of Jesus being expressed here now through, through the tear in our lives between uh, grace and religion. Since Jesus walked the earth and Jesus gave his life after his resurrection, the church throughout history has continued to battle against the thought that Jesus isn't sufficient in some way. Every century tried to present something about Jesus that was inadequate in itself and tried to add something additional to the gospel. Jesus is okay, but plus this. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses three and four, if you wanna look at it, it explains to us very concisely what the gospel is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has nothing to do with us and any religious work that we add to Jesus. In fact, if we put anything on top of, of Jesus, we're blaspheming God. Galatians chapter two expresses that to us very plainly at the very end of the book. The law, there there is no sufficiency in our salvation through law living. But the adequacy belongs to Christ alone. Every century... People had to war against the thought that Jesus wasn't sufficient. In fact, this idea in verse 9, strengthened by grace, not by foods. Uh, I mean, you can go back into the, into the early parts of the New Testament and see Jesus talking about this. One of the famous uh, passages that most of us would probably be familiar with, Luke chapter 15. Uh, there's a, several parables that Jesus lists there. But the last parable he talks about is the parable of the prodigal son, right? Let me just tell you for a minute why we're robbed by calling it the prodigal son. If you start off Luke chapter 15, you read at the beginning of the book, you'll see that Jesus' audience is is the sinners, the tax collectors, and the Pharisees. That's the people group Jesus is talking about. The outcasts from society because they're too sinful, and the ones that people can't relate to because they're so holy in other people's terms that they're just unattainable. And so Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, but here's the problem with calling it the prodigal son. Jesus doesn't call it the prodigal son. Jesus calls it the tale of two sons. That's the way Jesus titles that section of the parable. And when you read the parable, you see two types of people described there and and they relate to the audience that Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to the sinners and tax collectors and then the Pharisees. And and the sinners and tax collectors relate to the first son. They take the father's wealth, they squander it, they come back to the father and they're thinking, maybe I can just be a servant in his kingdom. But rather than just be a servant before the king, he brings them into his home, he celebrates with a banquet and he welcomes them in and he restores them to the position that they lost. It's to say to us that God's grace is sufficient. If you find that you might not be lovable, if you wonder how in the world God can offer anything to you, the prodigal son tells us that we need to find strength in his grace because Jesus is sufficient. Every generation wars with the inadequacy of Jesus, or at least trying to see the inadequacy of Jesus, of which Jesus doesn't lack. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He paid it all on the cross to tell us that it is finished, paid in full. But then the other part of the story, which we often overlook, we highlight the first part of the prodigal son. It's the second son. Because when the first son returns, how does the second son behave? Well, the party that the Father throws, the second son doesn't even attend. He looks at the father for loving on a son who was so sinful, and he despises the father. So much so that the father has to go and beg the son to come to the party. He's living in his religious identity. He says, Dad, don't you know I was here always? You never celebrated like this for me. Look at all the religious things I've done. And he causes the father to do something shameful in that time period. Fathers didn't have to go to the son to beg him to be a part of the greatest party the father ever threw. It was an embarrassment to the father to allow the son to display himself like this and yet the father goes and begs the son come. And that's what you see within these verses in verse nine. Strengthened by grace, the first son who leaves and then the religious people who don't see their need for Jesus as if they find the sufficiency for salvation within themselves. We all need Jesus. And not just a little bit. I don't care how religiously good you think you are in life, there isn't anything that puts you one step closer to the grace that you need in God. Otherwise, there was no need for Jesus. And so he's saying to us, Look, this is where you nourish yourself. Because, because when you're going in this life and you serve as a believer, sometimes you mess up, some things, sometimes things just get hard. You look at the world and you like, just want to toss up your hands. This grace is sufficient. His light can pierce the darkness and transform. The powerful God that changes your life can change it every day. And he can change the darkness around you. And so he's saying, nourish yourself on this. And you know how the argument goes here at the end of verse 10. Let me just show you this before I jump into the, that. When you, when you think about the way it's done in church history, look, even in the first century, how, how they expressed it. Paul's saying this in 2 Corinthians. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus or Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And so they're saying in the first century, they're taking the name of Jesus and they're redefining his identity. They're taking the gospel and they're redefining the gospel. That doesn't make it Jesus or the gospel. In Galatians, look what Paul says. But if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to which we, we have preached to you, he is to be accursed as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed for I am not, now seeking, the, I'm not seeking the favor of men or of God or am I striving to please men. If I were striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And that's what you see happening in in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 10. It says, Jesus and his sufficiency and his grace or or man-made law and the religious living, where do you find your adequacy in him? And it tells us in the book of Jude, look, when it comes to Christianity, the faith has been delivered to us. There is no addition to what's needed with what Jesus has done because the Old Testament showed the shadow of everything Jesus would fulfill and Jesus has arrived and Jesus has fulfilled it. And so Jude three says this Beloved, I, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was, look, once for all, I handed down to the saints. Judas, Jesus' half-brother, and he's making an identity about the faith in which we have been given, not your faith personally, but the faith, the identity that the Christian community has lived in since the first century because of the coming of Jesus that there is no addition, that this is it. (laughs) Jesus is the sufficiency of everything. In fact, in Ephesians chapter two, verse 20, it says the same thing, only from Paul's mouth. He says this, that God gave apostles and prophets for the building of the foundation for which we are knitted together in God's family in a spiritual household, the temple of God. How many times do you lay a foundation when you build a house? Once. And in the passage, it says, and Jesus is that cornerstone. Apostles and prophets laid a foundation. Now that the foundation has been laid, God's people, his holy temple, that's you and me, are being built in the cornerstone who is Jesus. Jesus isn't inadequate. He isn't an insufficient. And from 1 from Corinthians, you see that the church has faced the pressure to change the identity of Jesus and confesses his inadequacy. And it's, and it's not true. Sometimes I'll hear people talk about you know Christianity getting off kilter and, and needing to uh, to be redeemed or or going corrupt and I'll, you know ask the question if Christianity went to went corrupt where did where did it happen like if you go back in, in church history church history is so well documented it's an absurd statement to even make when someone makes that kind of statement it's like oh you you have no understanding of church history at all you're just making a statement that you are repeating because you can go you can literally go back and read the disciples of Jesus's disciples. Like, not only can you read the writings of the disciples, but those disciples made disciples, and you can read their writings too. <laughs> Ignatius, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Justin the Martyr. I mean, church history is laid out for us. And so when you try to identify, okay, where did, where did Christianity go corrupt? Oftentimes you'll hear, like, for instance, the Council of Nicaea, when Constantine legalized Christianity. And again, those types of statements come from a little inaccurate understanding of, of church history, but when you read... Surrounding the time of Constantine, just before Constantine, Christianity was actually experiencing the worst persecution it had faced uh, since the time that Jesus founded it. And when you look at church history, almost 300 years now past the, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus or about 250 plus years past uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, Diocletian and Galerius was, were persecuting the church to a degree they had not experienced yet. And then shortly after that persecution, Constantine comes into power. One year difference from their ending to Constantine. When Constantine legalizes Christianity, he calls Christian leaders together, over 300 of them, to, to clarify a doctrinal stand in Christianity. And it has to do with uh, the identity of Jesus. And he asked people, when did Christianity go corrupt? Well, it was in the Nicene Creed with Constantine. They changed the Bible then and stuff. Nicene Creed had nothing to do with the Bible. Now, it didn't come up, it wasn't even a debate. So so scripture being perverted in the Nicene Creed is just insanity, but they debated or they talked about the idea of the identity of Jesus, which for historical purposes, I think it's important for you to know that um, uh, Santa Claus was at this, (laughs) at the Nicene Creed. So, so if you don't agree with Santa Claus, shame on you. (laughs) So 300, over 300 Christian leaders come to the Nicene Creed and the reason they're gathering together is because of a man named Arian who's, who's, who's teaching heresy in regards to Jesus. And Constantine wants them to get in together and just clarify this so that Arian's voice uh, is, is not echoing in history anymore. So, and so they all come together, over 300 Christian leaders, and they write a doctrinal statement on Jesus. And the reason that they were able to do this, you think in church history, never before has the church been able to get into open public forums like this and meet. Because to do so, you, you could get your head lopped off. And finally, for the first time, they're all able to gather together, and and they articulate a statement on the identity of Jesus because of of false teaching Arian is presenting. And so all these guys gather in this room, Arian, one of his followers, and all the other Christian leaders, and, and they articulate a statement, and of course, Arian and his follower vote against it, but the rest of the church leaders support this statement on the identity of Jesus. And so the arguments made, okay, well, really, Constantine legalized Christianity, and so he corrupted it then. Well, let me just remind you of this. Church history has faced persecution now for over 250 years. Some historians have done research on the men that were gathered in that room to articulate the statement of faith as it related to Jesus. And some historians have said all but 12 of them had faced some form of persecution, pain, and suffering because of their faith in Christ. There were guys there that had lost their eyes, had them gouged out because of their faith in Jesus. There were individuals there that had their hands burned so, so severely they, they no longer functioned anymore. There were people that couldn't walk because of their faith in Christ. These were men that gathered in a room that bore the scars of persecution. They had stood up to emperors and told them what they thought about their stand against Jesus and chose to endure for the sake of Christ. They were not afraid to speak against emperors. Their bodies bore that resemblance. And so to suggest that these individuals who were just released from prison under the the reign of Diocletian all of a sudden were afraid of Constantine is ridiculous. And church history doesn't teach that. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because the faith that we rest on has bore the blood of martyrs throughout the centuries. Who is Jesus? His grace is sufficient. I love the way Hebrews 10, verses 10 and verse 14 uh, put it for us. It says, once for all. And the author said in, in, in this passage, I'll just remind you, he, at the end he said, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's saying, look, these religious people are coming to you and say you don't belong because you're not practicing their religious practice, but let me just remind you, you have something they don't have. It's Jesus. They can't go here, but you can. And, and so then he takes it a little step further in encouraging us and how we relate, taking the cross as a place for which we belong. There becomes a place in the Christian life where you've got to choose. What are you going to identify with? What's going to lead your heart? People or Christ?" Peer pressure or Jesus? And so he gives this illustration, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, for where they find their identity. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. I'll explain that in just a minute. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. What the author is remembering is the Day of Atonement, the most sacred day in the Jewish calendar year. It's the only day that they got to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and only one person got to do it. The high priest would take two goats and a bull, and they would sacrifice two of them, and one of them they would cast out. So it looked like this. They would... Come in with the two goats and the bull, and the high priest would lay his hands on the head of the bull and confessing his sins as if this was the atonement for his sins. And he would lay his hands on the head of the goats and confess the sins of Israel. One goat they would banish into the woods, away from the people, showing how God casts sin away uh, from us and our relationship to him. And then they would take the, the bull and the goat, and they would, they would sacrifice them, taking the blood to sprinkle in the Holy of Holies that the, only the high priest could go into one time a year as a removal for sin as a reminder that there was life in the blood and God called for death because of sin and so they would bring in the sacrifice as as their atonement their substitute for their sin and they would take the the body of the bull and the body of the goat and they would take it outside of the temple and, and they would burn it consume it totally Completely cast out as a demonstration of how sin again is cast out. This body just uh, given its entire life to the identity of sin and what it costs us. And then it compares that to Jesus saying how when Jesus, he goes in declares who he is in the temple. And he's cast out and he's placed on a cross and he gives his life for us. Completely sacrificing himself for you and I. And he's saying that is where your identity is. You can stay in the religious temple and identify with these people that want nothing to do with Jesus or you can go outside of the gate and you say, this is where I belong as he has given his life for me so I give my life for him. His cross is sufficient. And then he gives us these last two thoughts in verses 15 and 16. He says, through him then, let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. When you think about what Jesus has done, let us offer up a praise to him. And that's, that's what this morning is. That's what our hearts should be about throughout the week because we find another identity outside of this world. That's what the last verse said. Your city, your city is not this place, but your city is somewhere else. And so now we have that identity in Jesus. And, and within our hearts, there is uh, the sacrifice of praise. So what is a sacrifice of praise? It tells you in the next statement. The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Uh, I think I said this last week, but let me remind us is. And when God created, everything declares his glory. It's crazy to think that this world is under a sin curse, but you can still look out at the beauty of the mountains, covered, I think in snow this morning. It's insane already, but, but you look at the beauty of the mountains and it's just breathtaking, isn't it? It just inspires the heart to worship. When you go up there and the fall leaves and you see all that, it inspires the heart to worship. You see the beauty of creation, inspires the heart to worship. But you know, out of all the things that inspire the heart to worship, you know the, one of the most incredible things? It's you and I. Created in his image. God breathed into us the breath of life. Out of all the things that declare his, his glory in this world, you know, the, the most precious thing that I think exists is you because he gave you the voice to proclaim it. Like When the rest of the world looks and stands in all of this, you can say, and I know the one that created it all. He loves you. He's given his life for you. And so we offer this as the fruit of our lips and the sharing this with one another and in, in this world around us. And then he gives this last statement, do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. I want to please God. I know I don't always. But when I get to the end of my life, I want the end of my life to be exactly what Hebrews chapter 13 verse seven says. Remember those who have walked that path before you, right? And observe their faith or practice their faith. I want to live that kind of life where God is pleased with my heart because its pursuit is his. Do not neglect in doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And this is where I want to challenge my. And this is the, the verse that I challenge myself in. You know, think of all these verses that you could pick this morning. This this is mine. And the reason is this: there's times in life where I can pay lip service to God, like verse 15 says, and all I pay is lip service to God. But I think the Christian life is seen in the in the furtherance of his faith when when the followers of Jesus give of themselves and more than just their lips but in their actions and in their sacrifice. You know, I think about this valley and my prayer for this valley that I I, want to be a light in this valley. I want to see a church that God works through to transform this valley or or the church in general that God works through to to transform this valley. That is is my heart, right? And, and, And just the examination, does my heart match my actions? Well, this is what I think, guys, is when I consider what Jesus did for us, the faith was furthered through him because of sacrifice. And it was only because of sacrifice that the faith carried on. Because in him, now we can believe. But that demonstration continued to be true for the early church. The blood of the martyrs became seed. The blood of the martyrs was the very basis to demonstrate that they believed this world was not their own and they gave their lives for something more. And so when I think about the heart of Utah, and making a difference in this valley if you're serious about that it will not happen short of sacrifice the giving yourselves because of the beauty of Christ being made known in your life God where can I die to me to live for you God how can I give of myself to reflect in the lives of those around me the beauty of who you are And I know when I make that statement, I I, I say that realizing that sometimes we are weak. Guys, it's when we're weak that the strength of Christ is seen. I take blows in life where I'm like, God, can I just stop for just a minute? But it's in that pain, the beauty of Jesus is really seen. Because no matter how dark the days may be, the greater my light shines in Christ. When I follow him in those moments. God, when I say I want to reach this valley for you, I say on the understanding, on the backdrop of this idea that God's people move forward and the beauty of who he is is seen in sacrifice. That type of living can only be found when his grace is sufficient. When I go to him, Outside of the camp and to the cross. Identifying my life with his as he has been cast out. So shall mine be. Because my, my home is not this world. But God, when I deliver myself before a king who has given it all how powerfully you can work not only in in my heart, but God, you use that to minister to the hearts of others as a light of truth and a beacon of hope. Let my lips be words of praise. Let my heart reflect the goodness of who you are. May my life demonstrate a sacrifice that, that preaches the glory of this king and his kingdom. Remember your heroes. Trust in the one who never changes. Nourish on his grace, not religion. Identify in the cross. Worship, sacrifice because he's worthy. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.